happens and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Welcome to The Growth Show. Uh, It's Brian Halligan from HubSpot. I'm here with Cindy Goodrich from HubSpot. And we are interviewing one of my favorite people, Jeff Rosenblum. He's the CEO of Questus. And I think more importantly, he's the producer and director and writer of my favorite movie of all time. More than The Godfather, more than any other movie, uh, The Naked Brand. Absolutely love this movie. I tripped over the movie and watched it a couple years ago and loved it. Reached out to Jeff and... uh, just thrilled to have him on. Uh, welcome to the show, Jeff. Brian, thanks for having me. I greatly appreciate it. I greatly appreciate the kind words. And you, and, uh, you definitely need to get out and see a few more movies because I think the movie's pretty good, but it should not be your favorite. <laughs> You've said that to me before, actually. Uh, let, let me just ask you sort of the premise of the movie's fascinating. It, it, it's around the changing nature of how humans kind of live their lives and how they work and how they shop for stuff and how they buy stuff. Give us just a very high level. How do you think humans have changed over the last three, four, five years? Uh, Interestingly, from a behavior perspective, uh, they're constantly connected. They are constantly connected to each other. They're constantly connected to brands. They're constantly connected to screens. They're constantly connected to information. Um, and as it relates to our industry, I think that that creates a revolution. And I think we're at the early stages of an advertising revolution, one where we need to recognize that that brands are transparent, that people are getting all the information that they need from trusted sources through this constant connectivity. And the notion of building a great brand through paid media interruptions, uh, that's a, an antiquated tactic. Okay, interesting. So what the heck are you supposed to do? You're you're Coca-Cola or you're whoever you are, and you've got this giant marketing budget. You've been doing the same way forever. What am I supposed to do now? What do I do with that budget? How do I, like, what what do I do? Yeah, uh, great question. I think that's probably why why we get along so well, because I think we've got very similar viewpoints. And and certainly I think that's what HubSpot is really founded upon, is this notion of, of it's about content and information. But the, the truth of the matter is content, information, and tools, that's insufficient. I think the number one thing that brands need to do is find a way to empower consumers, to improve their lives one small step at a time. And, you know, you bring up Coca-Cola, but if you're, if you're Coca-Cola, if you're Budweiser, if you're some of these companies that spend astronomical amounts on paid media, for you know, low-priced, um, not very involved purchases. I'm not so sure that you know the advertising revolution is quite as applicable as to companies that are selling more expensive, more differentiated, more complicated purchases. You know, in short, anything that might cost fifty dollars or more. Because when you think about you know if you're going to buy a new ski jacket, if you're going to go on vacation, if you're going to buy a new car, a new scooter, uh, a new piece of sports or stereo or computer equipment. You're going you're gonna to take uh, uh, the process into your own hands. You're going to conduct your own research. You're going to go on, on search. You're going to go on social. You're going to go on mobile technology. And you're going to figure out you know, which products meet your needs, which brands you want to relate to, uh, which companies you want to buy for, and most importantly, which ones you want to evangelize for. So really, the notion there is about fundamentally shifting 
away from uh, paid media and into building these content, building content and experiences. And you know that sounds pretty straightforward, but it, it's really complex because the behavior has to start internally for brands. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. So uh, I'm listening to the show, and let's say I'm a CEO listening to the show. I want to talk about CEOs a little bit uh, with you. Um, let's just say I buy your thesis that, okay, people have changed and, uh, and advertising doesn't really work for my industry anymore and I need to create content. And, but I've got a marketing department with a bunch of people with a certain skill set have grown up in that traditional world. I've got my own set of experiences. I've got a budgeting structure that's really dedicated to spending on media. How do I make the shift to this new world? Like, what did the... What is, how do I hire a CMO today? Like, what does that CMO look like, feel like, smell like? How do I do my budget? Like, how, give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think there's there's two big action items that that they're they're obviously very difficult to do. But I, uh, you know, I've spent about 20 years in this in this industry, not only just making this documentary, but my background is in research, and I've I've always had access to the statistics and the data about what works from a from a bottom line perspective. And, and what we know is that paid media interruptions, you know, buying advertising, doesn't work nearly as well as we would like. So to answer your question, what I would recommend is to actually take the budgeting process and turn it upside down. Here's what the budget looks like right now. Companies take as much money as they possibly can and they pump it into paid media. So if you're a huge company, you're gonna buy on Super Bowl, if you're a big company, you're going to buy on TV. If you're a smaller company, you're going to buy on YouTube and banner ads or whatever the case may be. Whatever, and then they're going to take a percentage of that and then they're going to apply it to the creative. So you've got great TV ads, great banner ads, great whatever uh, ad units you need. And then they're going to take whatever's left over and start putting it into content and tools like a great website, uh, great social media content, great email and CRM. And you know, sometimes that money can be pretty big. It can be a few hundred thousand dollars, but it's actually a drop in the bucket for most of these huge companies. So what I would recommend is this, is take all of the money that it takes to create a great brand foundation, to create not just a great website and a great mobile website, but the content and tools that empower people, that improve people's lives in your category. So, you know, if you're uh, a hotel company, help people have a great vacation. If you're a motorcycle company, help people have a great ride on their motorcycle. Or even more fundamental than that, give them the content and information and tools related to your product category. You know, the descriptions, the photos, the videos, the independent ratings and reviews, right? Build that great website. And then make sure that you're propagating all of that information out into all of the touch points, whether it's social, Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, what else is, whatever else is emerging you know, strong evangelism through email marketing, etc. Once you've got that great foundation, then you can start spending money on paid media. You can't just have this great foundation and not drive traffic to it. That's like a candy store in the desert. So you still need that paid media, but instead of using paid media to tell the whole brand story, that paid media just becomes a gateway into those experiences. So what, what I'm advocating is not that advertising is dead and that advertising is going to go away. It's the notion of first invest in these great experiences, then use paid advertising. Because when you step back from being a professional advertiser and just think as a consumer, that's what drives our purchase decisions. It's the information that we get about the products we're considering. Okay. Uh, let me just, let's just have an existential 
pie chart in our minds in sort of the, the, the old school way, you've got three pieces of the pie chart. You've got the dollars you're spending on paid media. You've got the creative um, around that. And then you've got the third category you just talked about. What are the ratios in a traditional company? What are those ratios today? How, how does that budget look for, for somebody in 2015 versus what it would look like in 2010? Man, that, that's a great question, and I don't know if anyone knows that, and I don't know if it's consistent across categories. The guys who probably know it best are companies like CPGs, uh, consumer packaged goods, and maybe some automotive companies that have huge dollars. But maybe you know, and I'd lo- if you do, I'd love for you to share it. But you know, I think I think a lot of that isn't known. You know, usually you'll spend about twenty percent of your paid media on the actual creative, but I don't know how that relates to how much they're spending on on social and websites and mobile and search. But the truth of the matter is, uh, in non-specific terms, most brands that I work with, and you know, Fortune 1000s, are spending way too little on digital experiences, digital content, and digital tools, and way too much on paid media. Okay, I'll take a swag at that. Um, I suspect people spend like 15% on their creative spend 70% on their paid media advertising essentially and buying lists and spamming people and stuff like that. And I'm going to guess 15% is on, I'll call it inbound marketing, great website, social blog content, all that cool stuff. Yeah. And my swag would be, you want to kind of flip that over. So I would, I would recommend people spend 85, like at HubSpot, we spend about 90% on inbound, our site, our social, all the people who create our content, all that stuff. And about 10% we spend on where we can get the math to work on AdWords and Facebook ads and stuff like that. I think that's the new model. And in my mind, what's changed, uh, the thing that's flipped around, two things have flipped around. One is people are ignoring those ads in ever-increasing ways. Two, darn hard to quantify whether those ads are working. And three, there's just no leverage them. What I like about the, the website and the social and the blog and the, all that stuff is there permanent kind of marketing assets on your marketing balance sheet that lasts forever, whereas an ad is you're renting space on somebody else's asset. You're renting space on Google, on, on the Super Bowl, on whatever it is, versus owning your own assets. And today, the cost to create your own Super Bowl, to create your own website, your own TV show, your own radio show like this one has dramatically dropped. So the math has really changed. And so we, we recommend people kind of flip that on its head, more like 90 for the inbound stuff, 10 for the paid stuff. The paid stuff's kind of ephemeral. Um, and we use the paid stuff to just sort of juice some of the uh, the inbound stuff. Does that sound rightish to you? Uh, it, it sounds glorious, to be honest with you. I would, I would love for brands to go there. I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying, for the most part. You know, there's always going to be some categories that are less involved, less differentiated, yep. that need more, a little bit more paid media. I totally agree with that. Yep. Um, but you're probably, for the lion's share of big companies, uh, I would guess eight to ten years away from companies fully embracing that, right? And over the next eight to ten years, they'll slowly... Uh, decrease the amount they spend on paid media and increase the amount they spend on inbound. But I think what you're learning through all the data that you have for your clients as well as your own brand success are that companies that are more aggressive with it are immediately seeing results. And companies that are stuck in yesteryear, uh, they're paying the price dearly from a bottom line perspective. Yeah, and I think, Jeff, um, you know, we're all in agreement in terms of paid media ads and 
you know, looking at the effectiveness of them. Um, I think one of the questions I have is you mentioned really looking at how you can create content and you can do marketing that improves your consumer, you know, your consumer's experience or your consumer's lives, right? And the question there is how are you actually when you're working with the bigger brands or even like Starbucks um, or even some of the smaller brands, like how are you guys actually talking with them about measuring that or saying that there's really, you know, is not just about like the fluffy improving, but how are you actually quantifying that? Like how would we measure HubSpot's brand? I feel like we have a good brand. Mm -hmm. I feel like the equity is good. And we measure the number of people who search on it. We're talking about it on Twitter and some of that stuff. But it's like if we had a line on our balance sheet, how much is our brand worth? And how do you advise Starbucks to do that in companies with big B2C brands? How do we think about that? You know, the companies that are doing it best, whether it's uh, Patagonia, whether it's Chipotle, whether it's Under Armour, you know, Dove, we're, we're getting a little tired of hearing the same brands and yep. the same case mm -hmm. studies. But I think what they've realized is it's about creating a platform and that platform is consistent across all these different touch points. And they don't get caught up, I, I would hope, too much in measuring the effectiveness of these individual tactics. So one of the reasons I started an agency is this. I worked in market research for about six years and I probably did it for about 12 years, but purely in market research for about six years, I was one of the first guys to help pioneer the field of internet research. So I'm still like this young pimply faced kid, barely knew what I was doing. And I wound up with some great clients, Microsoft, Netscape, Sun Microsystems, you name it. And the thing that they were asking me to do was to measure the effectiveness of their websites. Uh, excuse me, measure the effectiveness of their paid advertising. And what I quickly learned is I didn't have to change the numbers, but I could manipulate the story however they wanted to make it look good or bad. And, you know, depending on whether it was the agency or the CMO, they always have their own perspective. So let's say there's 68% awareness. Well, is 68% awareness good or bad? Who knows? My point is this, is measurement has always been flawed and always will be flawed. And one of the things that holds back inbound marketing is that people want this incredible measurement, uh, the way that they've been able to do it for, for TV and for print. The truth of the matter is measurement is only supposed to be a conduit uh, to bottom line financial results. So I, I think the action item there is as crazy as it sounds is we need to get a little bit away from uh, our addiction to measurement and a little bit closer to saying, okay, let's build a brand, let's take a slower path to growth and let's look at the bottom line financial metrics because at the end of the day, Everything else is just you're trying to get to your financial metrics. So when you think about all these different ways you can market, you know, inbound has, you know, let's say 10 different ideas. Now found has 10 different ideas. Each brand's going to have to develop their own correlation analysis to look at, okay, what's the metric that works for us? Because the metric that works for Patagonia is totally different than the metric that works for Coke. Yeah, and I mean, I think for CMOs, right, when they're talking to their CEOs who are like, where, you know, what's the ROI on this? I think for inbound, one of the things that we talk about is it doesn't just happen overnight. So again, like when you used to run, you know, you, you would do your big media buy on TV and you would say, okay, here are our GRPs, like we were able to hit this reach, blah, blah, blah. Like, and you could say the, you know, within a couple of weeks what that was. I think for inbound, the, the, one of the things that we run into is the effectiveness is something where it doesn't just happen overnight. It's something mm -hmm. that you really see over over time. And so 
I think there's also a training that needs to happen, right, in terms of like when you're looking at those results and looking at the measurement of those results when it ties to the actual financials, it's going to take time before you actually see like, oh, we drew revenue tomorrow. It's not like doing a limited time offer where the next day you say, okay, I had a spike in revenue. But yeah. I mean, I think like, it, are you having those conversations right now with CEOs and CMOs about how to actually think about that, that it takes time to prove that you're improving people's lives and that you're actually making the experience better? And, and how do you breach, you know, how do you go into those conversations? Yeah, we have those conversations every day. It's usually not necessarily with the CEO level, unless it's a smaller company. It tends to be at the CMO or or even at the digital director level, because I think there's there's this next generation of CMO that's emerging right now uh, that really understands it. The issue with a lot of CMOs right now is they're brilliant, and but you know they're not you know they're not 25, they're not 35 years old. They've been in the industry for 30 years. Maybe they went to Harvard, then they went to Harvard Business School, and then they mastered the craft at a CPG or an automotive company, and they got really good at, at, at optimizing GRPs and what other whatever tools they have. But you know, in 10 years, the blink of an eye, all of that has been completely disrupted thanks to technology. So right now there is no perfect model and that almost holds back the, the, the industry and holds back the strategy to a certain extent because I think people are looking and say, okay, Rosenblum, you're out there, you made the film, you, you know, you're pompous enough to put yourself on this, on this interview, you know, what is that key metric? And the truth of the matter is there isn't one key metric out there, right? I think a lot of it comes down to you know, finding true experts, uh, trusting some gut instinct, and that doesn't mean you're not using data like crazy, but uh, what, what's that joke about uh, advertisers uh, use market research the way a drunk uses a, uh, a lamppost, more for, um, less for illumination and more just to help them stand up, right? <laughs> Something along those lines, I think I butchered that a little bit. But the point is, we love data, we love metrics, we love that information, and all marketers should. But I think that should be more used to say, okay, what's the creative and what's the strategy that we're developing rather than trying to pat ourselves on the back and say that this specific tactic works. Because yeah. whether it's a click-through rate or time on site or an open rate, a lot of that stuff is largely irrelevant to bottom line results. Okay, I want to switch gears a bit and I want to get some uh, advice from you. I'm a CEO of a, of a software company here. Um, you study brands, like you've studied Patagonia, and I'm sort of obsessed with their CEO. Can you talk about him and his value to that brand? And what does a modern CEO look like and act like? And what's the relationship to marketing? Just can you just like riff on CEOs today? Yeah, I think the best, and I don't want to pretend that I spent an astronomical amount of time with dozens and dozens of of CEOs at Fortune 100. I have spent some good time with Yvonne Chouinard of Patagonia, Kevin Plank of Under Armour. You know, I've read and I've studied and all this and that. The, here's, here's what they are. One, uh, they're very brave. They're willing to say, look, wh what got us here, what got this industry here isn't what's going to get us to the next level. They're, they're quick to be able to break the addiction to interruptive brand building through TV, print, and banner ads. Um, the other thing that they do very, very effectively is they break down boundaries that exist within an organization. And, you know, if you look at Yvonne Chouinard, um, they, spend very, uh, they spend very few dollars on paid advertising. They really uh, invest in, in creating their own content that lives in an omni-channel world. So you can find great content on email, you can find great content on YouTube, you can find great content on their website or Facebook. 
you name it. And a lot of that content is very narrow in nature. Sometimes they're trying to defend the, the environment. Sometimes they're trying to uh, celebrate extreme skiers in Japan. So what they've done is they've created enough content that can uh, appeal to their broad target audiences, but each piece of individual content doesn't necessarily appeal to everyone. But here, here, let, me, uh, let me digress. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a little story that I think uh, exemplifies this a little bit. So I bought, the, I bought the Steve Jobs book. And the reason I bought the Steve Jobs book is I wanted to put this thing under my arm, walk around the airport, and appear much smarter than I actually am. <laughs> I never thought for a second I was going to want to read the Steve Jobs book because, hey, just like everybody else, I know the ending. But I started to read it, and, and it's brilliant. And uh, it, every page, it literally turns into a page turner. But the page that really jumped out at me is every Monday, he had a meeting with all of the department heads. And they would sit for hours, and the point of the meeting is, let's break down the boundaries that exist in an organization. And all these guys are like, look, man, I work at Apple. I'm super busy. I don't have time for this crap, Steve. You know, we got things to do. But through his sheer force of will that he was famous for, he was like, no, we're going to have this meeting. We're going to break down the boundaries. So when you think about, you know, what they did in retail or more specifically in the genius bar, what is the genius bar? Is it marketing? Is it hardware? Is it software? Is it customer service? Is it sales? Is it content? It's all of the above. So the only way to create these breakthrough experiences are to break down the boundaries. Now, at the same time, I found this article uh, in Vanity Fair. In, in the name of the article is The Lost Decade. And basically, this writer went out to Seattle, and he only had one question, which is, what the hell happened to Microsoft over the past 10 years? One of the great companies in the world basically flatlined. And he spoke to dozens and dozens of people. He had no preconceived notion. And virtually every single person that he spoke to gave the same answer, which is this. It was their comp plan. And roughly paraphrasing, their comp, their comp plan rewards the top performers within any individual department. So the top 10% of people in the department get more equity, get more compensation. Which means, hey, you don't need to be a great team player in your department. You just need to knock people down in your department and you rise to the top. Or more importantly, you don't need to cut across departments and come up with these breakthrough experiences like Apple because you're not rewarded for breaking down those silos. The point is this, to, to finally answer your question, Brian, it's great leaders are able to find these small pieces of friction and remove them. Because you would never think what seems like a logical comp plan at Microsoft for rewarding your top performers can actually help that company basically implode. And you'd never think like a basic Monday meeting where everyone was bored over at Apple can help it become one of the most valuable companies on the planet. But great leaders are, are you know, it's obvious that they're very brave. But I think more to the point right now, they're able to break down those internal silos. Okay, got it. Uh, totally buy that. Now, talk about CEOs as marketers. So I, I have this feeling, at least in my industry, the brand and the founders, they sort of overlap and morph in this weird way. So like Larry Ellison and Oracle, like Mark Benioff and Salesforce, like Jeff Bezos and Amazon, Steve Jobs and Apple. There's something that's happened, it seems like, in, in the last 10, 20 years where that the, the CEO founder, the founders of the company and that brand become intertwined. And it feels to me 
like there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for CEOs to embrace that, and most of them run from it. Um, do you feel that same thing is going on, and what do you recommend people do about it? Uh, great question. Look, I think if you look at the most successful companies out there, you just ticked off half a dozen. I've ticked off a few. Many of them right now are run by founders. And as founders, they're not beholden to tradition. They're not beholden to the way things have been done in, in yesteryear. They're, they're able to make these changes. That's why you see great performance at, a, again, companies like Under Armour. So, you know, uh, I think to, it'll always be that these companies need, the CEOs that are, have created great software companies need to continue down that path. And the huge Fortune 100 companies that are no longer run by CEOs, they're going to need to find leaders who are able to break from historical conventions. And that's really hard because what you're talking about is transformation without disruption. And, you know, there's no books written about that right now. There's no playbook that we can go to. There's playbooks for traditional advertising. There's thousands and thousands of books and pieces of data about storytelling, about media optimization. But when it comes to transforming an organization to embrace modern technology, uh, you got to write your own playbook. Do you think CEOs need to be on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, all these social networks? Do, you, do they need to be active on it? Or do you think it's a waste of their time? Or is it dangerous? I, so I'm on Twitter. I'm very active on it. I actually use it. I enjoy it as a medium to, uh, to learn and, and pick stuff up. Uh, a lot of CEOs are really afraid of it for whatever reason. Do you think in today's day and age it's a must? They must be on Twitter. They must be on LinkedIn. They must be on Facebook. Or it's like, ah, it doesn't matter. I don't think it's a must, but it certainly matters. I think they need to be familiar with these tools. I think they need to use the tools on a personal level. Do they need to uh, be active participants on Twitter, uh, et cetera? I, I don't think so, only if it's extraordinarily authentic. If it's not authentic to you, uh, you're not going to stick with it. I'll give you an example, which is myself. You know, I, um, you know I, I run a digital agency. We do some really progressive stuff. We do a lot in social. And the, and the honest truth is I'm, I'm kind of a social knucklehead. So, you know, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. I don't use it that much because it's not, it's not that authentic for me. So I think if you, if you want to engage in those conversations, you want to be an active participant, hell no, you should not be scared of it. But I don't think you should force yourself into doing it. There's more than enough uh, touch points out there, whether it's, whether it's email or content creation. There's all different ways to engage. But I don't think you need to force yourself into social. I'm going to give you a contrarian thought on that. Uh, I, when I, let's say I'm buying, going to buy a product. And let's say, I'm, let's say it's an expensive product. I'm going to buy some office furniture or something mm -hmm. like that. And uh, when I'm evaluating the product... In today's day and age, what we notice across our customers is people generally go and look at the CEO's profile uh, on the website. Uh, I mm -hmm. think something like 23% of our customers in the last year before they bought looked at my profile. And then a very large percentage of them clicked on my, uh, uh, clicked on my Twitter account to see what I was up to there or clicked on LinkedIn to see what I was up to there. I kind of feel like if, if the CEO isn't on, let's just say it's completely invisible, not on Twitter, not on LinkedIn, I think it sends a negative closed message. Like, let's say I buy that office furniture and I get in trouble or the shipment gets lost or something's broken. I want to be able to tweet right at that CEO or find that, that CEO on LinkedIn. I think it opens the doors, it knocks the walls down, and it creates trust and transparency. If you're totally off the social networks, I, I feel like it's, 
I think the modern buyer wants to feel that CEO. I think the CEO's relationship with the buyer is very different than it used to be. It used to be the man in the gray flannel shirt. Now that CEO and that brand are very tied, and people want to be able to touch them. They maybe never will, but I think they need to be on there by hook or by crook, or they'll, uh, they won't scare customers away, but it's a pink flag, I think, in customers' minds. You, you buy that? Well, I'm, I'm taking notes, and my note says, uh, Rosenblum, stop being such a social media knucklehead. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think it's great advice. At the very least, I do agree and feel extremely strongly. Like, it's, it's definite. You must. Your company has to have a strong presence in the key social media channels. And, and they, they change, you know. Uh, we've had great success for clients in Pinterest, yep. uh, and we've had great success for clients in Twitter and Facebook, but it's usually not all three for, for, for each client, right? It really comes down to uh, understanding uh, how that brand uh, interacts with consumers. So yeah, you absolutely have to be there. And if you feel strongly that it should be at the CEO level, I'm certainly not going to argue against that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think also to the point of authenticism, like that's authentic for us as a company and as for you as a person, right? So for HubSpot, one of the things that we really value and talk to is being transparent and being open. And it makes sense that like our leadership is actually very much active and out there and very transparent because it's core to who we are, right? So I think it's possible that for other companies, as long as they have that, their brand presence out there, Maybe it's not authentic to their CEO to be as active. Again, I think, you, like you said, it's good to have that opportunity to have a conversation and a dialogue. But you're yep. very, you know, it's who you are and it's who HubSpot is. And so I think that's that goes to the authenticism. Um, and I think that that actually brings up a good point about the naked brand, which, Jeff, you know, that uh, I think that came out about a year and a half ago. And mm-hmm. so it's like it's very much about how brands are really authentic. And it's not just doing messaging or marketing that tells a true story, but it's like actually reinventing the product, reinventing who you are. Um, have you seen any like new, really amazing examples that we should be talking about or thinking about now over the last year and a half that maybe people that if you could interview today to do Naked Brand Part 2, you would be talking to? You know, I, I, see, them, I see them every day, and I'll, I'll rattle off a couple examples that I think are awesome. Um, in the documentary, you talk about Patagonia and the Footprint Chronicles and how they've championed defending the environment. But recently I came across uh, content and tools on the North Face, which is Patagonia's biggest competitor. It's run by a dear friend of Patagonia's CEO. And what they said is, look, Patagonia can champion the environment. We're going to champion athletes. So you can go on their website or you can download an app and it propagates through social. And what you can do is get training tips, advice, and videos from some of the top athletes in the world. So if you're a skier or a rock climber, there is proprietary content that shows you, you know, for me, for example, how to get in shape for ski season. That's a really big deal. Like there's not a lot of information out there, modern information that tells me how to get my back and my legs and my my aerobic system in shape for ski season. And what could be more trusted than going to North Face, one of the great brands, to watch these videos from some of the great athletes out there? And when you're up there, it's never like, hey, this is sponsored by North Face. And by the way, I look great in this North Face jacket. And wait 30 seconds, and you can, once you see this North Face ad, you can watch the video. It's all very seamless and, and very authentic, which is just go there, watch the video, interact with it. If you want to share it on Facebook, if you want to talk about it, if you want to buy it from North Face, that's your prerogative. But we're not going to dump our brand all over this. And, and honestly... I was a huge Patagonia fan after you know uh, interacting with them, and I still am. North Face was not part of uh, my thought process at all, 
And after interacting with the videos and seeing what they're doing, uh, now I'm not only a North Face customer, I'm, I'm a bit of an evangelist. You know, I have a hat, so I'm a walking billboard. I tell my friends about it. I recommend it to my buddies. We're all going skiing. Uh, that's, that's just great content. Um, you know, another example that comes to mind in the documentary, what we talk about is Crayola. And they've got this product called the, uh, the, the Colored Bubble Launcher. It's one of the worst products ever developed. Every single person that rated the product, every single person gave it one star. And what we realized is that it only got one star on Amazon is because people can't give it zero stars. You know, people have, you know, their, their, their kids are covered in, in, in paint, their houses and apartments are getting ruined. You know, they're talking about class action lawsuits. There's videos of kids crying. But, but what I've learned is, you know, that was just one pretty good misstep by Crayola. But they're still a great company with great products. And one thing that they've launched is... Uh, an online hub where kids can um, download uh, tools and lessons and, and, and products where they can become uh, more creative and better artists. So whether it's printing out coloring books or taking a picture of their face and uploading it and then coloring it, like who doesn't want their kid to be more creative and more artistic rather than mindlessly playing violent video games? And, you know, so now what they're doing is they're not only saying, okay, Jeff, for example, we just shifted you from a customer to a prospect, but thanks to these tools, we're also creating, we're also turning you into a digitally enabled evangelist. Because once you can create all this cool art on the website, you can then, with one click, share it out onto Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest, and now all of a sudden, 135 of your friends on average have uh, have seen the great things that you're doing, and the Crayola brand goes along for the ride. Got it. Okay, uh, you just brought up the movie. I just love the documentary. Um, some really stupid questions about it. First of all, why did you do it? I mean, it's a huge undertaking to write, direct, and produce. Like it's an hour long. It's like a full on thing. Uh, why did you do that? And where did you get the gumption to do it? And yeah, what's the deal? Uh, great question. I never have a cool answer. <laughs> the real answer is I never meant to. Right? What I what I saw was that. Consumers have gone through this complete and total revolution in the way that they communicate with each other and interact with brands. And when we started the process a couple of years ago, we saw that the advertising industry was still caught in the Mad Men era, right? Very few brands were as enlightened as you know the, as as you guys are and as HubSpot's clients are, and they were basically relying on you know smiling pitch person gets on the screen, holds up the product, buys some, it's good. So we actually thought we were going to make like an eight-minute thought leadership video. And we put it up on our website and we share it with some folks. And, you know, we got into it and eight minutes turned into 15 minutes, 15 turned into 30. And what we realized, we never thought for a second, we never thought we would come up with this finding that the advertising industry can help save the world one small step at a time. And I really believe that, right? If, if all brands or most brands can change We've got the ability to improve people's lives. And we shouldn't do it for altruistic reasons. We should do it because it leads to unparalleled and unprecedented financial results. But one step at a time, we started seeing this story. Like, so at one point, we screened the documentary in San Francisco at the same place that Apocalypse Now was screened for the first time. It was a private event. We just wanted to show a rough draft of it. 
And next thing you know, some people came out of the woodwork like, holy smokes, Patagonia is doing amazing things. You should get Patagonia in this. And Unilever is doing amazing things. You should get Unilever in this. So, you know, it just sort of grew and grew to the point where at the end, uh, you know, we really want to get like Chipotle, for an example, in there. And once it was launched, you know, we're on the phone with Chipotle and we're like, look, we're done. You know, the story's out there. And as much as the Chipotle story is fantastic, it's not going to. It's not going to advance the film anymore. It's just going to make it 10 minutes longer and slightly more boring. Okay. So the truth of the matter is uh, it, it really just naturally grew. And it turned into a movement. You know, the, the, when, the, when we screened it at the New York Times Theater, which is a gorgeous theater, tons of huge documentaries are screened there, uh, we walked out and, you know, feeling pretty good about ourselves. And this woman comes up to me and she's crying. She's in tears and she comes up and she gives me a hug. Because the end of the film, and I can't take credit for this, it was the co-writer and co-director came up with this really great emotional wrap-up. And this woman came up to me, she's crying, she gives me a hug, and she's like, I loved it, you know, for so long I wanted to do something creative, I always knew brands could do something more important than just trying to dump products on people. And she's literally crying, and I give her a hug, and I was like, this is really sweet, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, lady, you're, you, you're kind of bonkers, why are, <laughs> well, why are you crying over this documentary? I, so... Then we went to the next theater and the same thing happened. And we went to the next theater and the same thing happened. And, you know, there's a couple hundred people in the theater and it's only like one person is literally in tears. So I don't want to say it's ubiquitous. But what I realized, I think it really struck a chord. And in particular, it struck a chord with a younger audience. People who, who are looking at the world and saying, look, I don't just want a job. I want to create something that makes a difference. And I want it to be sustainable, meaning that, you know, it won't be a fad. We're going to hug the trees and then we're going to move on to the next fad. Right. Uh, how, well, a couple other stupid questions on it. How long did it take you to make it? How much did it cost you to make it? It took, uh, it probably took a year. But, yeah. but, you know, the lion's share of the taping and writing and all that was probably three to six months. Got it. And then it takes another six months to, you know, polish it and get it exactly where you want to get it. And, you know, we really worked on this concept of don't break the spell, which is this woman who wrote this book called Wired for Story taught me this expression, which basically means, you know, if you have one bad part of a film, it pulls people out of the story. So we spent a lot of a lot of time just trying to trying to polish it. And as I watch it now, I still see spots where I wish we polished it a little bit more. And then to make the documentary, um, one of my big challenges over at Quest This is I always tell the team, like, this is easy. This is going to take 10 minutes. Just bang it out and get it done. And the team's like, dude, that, that takes six months. Where, where are you nuts? So, so basically, I was like, this is going to be easy. And they were like, Jeff, you know piss off, man. Go, go try this thing and, and you'll get your comeuppance. And, you know, in, in some ways I did because it was really hard, but in some ways I get extremely lucky. I, 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 I'm dear friends with a guy named Shung Lee Huang, who is the co-writer and co-director, but I wasn't dear friends with him then. He was almost a stranger and he turned out to be brilliant. So he helped write it, he helped write it, shoot it, edit it. And the answer to your question finally is we probably did this whole thing for ballpark, you know, in the, in the neighborhood of $100,000. But, you know, these things literally usually cost over a million dollars. But yeah. what I learned is if you got a great partner and some gumption and a lot of caffeine, you can do it for 10 cents on the dollar. Got it. Did it work? I mean, you've got an agency quest this. You had it before you made the movie and after. Did it dramatically change the trajectory trajectory of, uh, of Questus or has it kind of been the same? 
Uh, it, it worked great, but I think it would be more fun to talk about where it failed me. So um, it worked great because I think it was great for us to solidify what we want to do over here to help recruit new team members, to help recruit uh, great new clients, to help shift our current clients over to new thinking. And anytime you've got that great proprietary content, it helps fundamentally shift the company. So for example, for us, you know, three, four years ago, we were making tons and tons of banner ads for clients and making good money doing it. But at one point we woke up and we're like, we don't want to do any more banner ads. This sucks. It's not, it's not compelling to us. It's, it's not working for the brand. And creating the documentary really helped us shift our business model into stuff that we believe in. Um, but let's talk about where it failed because I think that's, that's more interesting. Where it failed was we started getting really popular. And we won, right when we created the documentary, we won agency of the year two years in a row. And the phone started ringing off the hook, and we started saying yes to stuff that, that we shouldn't have said yes to. So next thing you know, we're doing work that's profitable but doesn't set our soul on fire. We're doing like direct mail work and, and, and all this stuff that's paying good money. And next thing you know, we're not great at that work. The team is pissed off. We thought there was going to be a revolution in advertising, and, and we were going to lead it, Rosenblum, and you let us down this bullshit path. And, you know, it, it was it was a bit of a challenge. And... So now, a year and a half later, I think we've come to this great place where we've recognized, you know, what's our purpose as a business? What's our mission as a business? Who do we want to recruit? How do we create the culture? But it probably took us a year and a half to figure it out. And if you would look back at our organization nine months ago, I would think that we were probably pretty jumbled up inside because we got pretty popular from the film, but we didn't create a plan to sort of fulfill upon everything that we were preaching. So I think we're there now, we're close to there now, but certainly it hasn't been the easiest process. Growth is growth is painful. Well, and on that point, like, you know, you mentioned the idea that it really kicked off this movement. Now that you guys are where you are, what are you going to do to continue growing the movement? We talk about that too, right? Inbound, we look at that as there's a community of people who are passionate about inbound and it's more of a movement where you have people all over the world, actually, mm-hmm. who are really changing how they look at marketing and advertising and changing the way they talk with their consumers. Like, what are you guys doing going forward to really continue pushing this advertising revolution forward? Yeah, great question. Uh, content creation. Content creation is, well, yeah, let's start with there. Content creation is, is, is the most important thing I think we can do to push the, the industry forward. So, um, whether that means we're, we're lecturing at universities or we're taking the film down, we were just in Costa Rica, uh, where we'll take the film, we'll cut it up into different places and, and share it with people. So rather than saying, hey, we want to make as much money as possible selling this documentary, uh, we basically have taken it and sliced it and diced it and turned it into a variety of uh, formats that we can share with others. We take our entire management team and everybody on the management team writes articles uh, rather than trying to create our own blog, uh, which I think we really need to do, but our short-term first approach was to write for other blogs. So we write a lot for like the Ad Age blog. We write for Fast Company and iMedia. Um, we tried to write a book. To be really uh, honest, we failed in that effort. I don't know how you pulled that off uh, at least once. I think you might have written two, Brian, but yeah. I know you wrote at least one, and, and I found that to be extremely difficult. Um, uh, uh, we write. Uh, we give a lot of presentations. We're thinking about doing proprietary research. One of them is uh, I'm fascinated by the concept of neuroscience. I think neuroscience has been largely bastardized to say how can we, you know, figure out how to make a great 30 second TV ad. And I'm convinced that 
We can use neuroscience to figure out how we can empower people by sort of removing friction in their lives. But the, the, the short answer is create as much content as possible that um, empowers your target audience. So our target audience, Fortune 1000 companies, how can they build better brands? How can they be more profitable? Create content, whether it's text-based or video-based. Let it live wherever it needs to live, whether it's on the website, email, PDFs, social, uh, and, and keep with it, right? You know, I can point to a few times where someone saw the documentary and then decided to buy something from us, but I think it's more that people interact with the brand, they interact with all these different pieces of content, and then ultimately not only decide to buy from us, but be loyal to us and then recommend us to others. Well, Jeff, I think that I, that sums up the conversation nicely. I mean, we're totally, you know, we're very much in line with you on that um, in terms of creating great content to keep the movement going forward and just really empowering your audience and connecting with them. So I think um, that pretty much does it for us today on The Growth Show. We wanted to thank you so much for your time. We really, Brian and I really enjoyed the conversation. I was really happy to see Brian was taking notes when you said it didn't take 10 minutes. It took a year to do that film because, <laughs> you know, working with the creative team closely. Um, but, you know, thank you so much for your time and for everyone listening in. Thanks for joining us for The Growth Show. And if you want to hear um, more guests talking about great growth experiences, uh, subscribe to Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye.